Well, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 11. If you want a title, if you're making notes, I've called this message A Most Tangible Blessing. For those of you that are new to Sovereign Grace, we are presently in a series looking at the Gospel of Luke, a gospel that's written by a doctor called Luke, who's really become a Christian and is giving lots and lots and lots of time to speaking to eyewitnesses that accounted for Jesus when he was alive. And he's compiling a narrative of everything that he has heard about Jesus. Why? So that we may have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught. He wants us to understand that our faith isn't just written on the back of a napkin or something. But our faith is real. Our faith is tangible. Our faith is something that we can truly rely on. Amen. Today we're going to read Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through to verse 36. So let's read this together. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, a prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons... Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, he passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts of which you were nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. 
But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. It's a long text. It's a good text. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for your mercy this morning. Lord, I thank you that you are unchanging as we've heard about, as we've sang about. So Lord, would you in an unchanging way today open our eyes to behold the wonders of your word? Lord, would you speak to our heart? Would this make sense? And would our lives be changed as a result? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as many of you would know, I enjoy films, I enjoy movies. And I particularly remember in the 1990s, it became really quite popular for films to actually kind of start halfway through. You'd have a scene that you were going to go back to about halfway through the movie, but actually the whole movie would start with it. It would be a scene that was important, that was influential, that was informative, a scene that would help to explain really the rest of the movie. And so the movie would begin, boom, this scene that you're like, wow, that's pretty intense. And then the credits would come up at the start, the music would come, and you'd go all the way back to the beginning. And the beginning would make more, way more sense because you know where it's going. Well, in so many ways, I submit to you that this text, by way of making sense of it, works in pretty much the same way. Because if this text was a movie, I think it would fast forward to verses 27 and 28. Because when you understand that scene everything else makes more sense. See, this is what happens. In the midst of everything that is taking place, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's right in the middle of the movie, if you will. But it's such an important scene. A woman raises her hand, raises her voice, in effect says, Blessed is your mum. Oh, what a privilege, what a joy to be your mum, for blessed is she, blessed is Mary. Now, Jesus doesn't contradict that that isn't true. Mary herself, when she heard that she was going to give birth to Jesus, the Savior of the world, in, in Luke chapter 1, she begins to sing, Now my soul magnifies the Lord, and my soul rejoices in God my Savior. She's aware, who am I that he would look upon me in my helpless estate? He who is mighty has done great things. She knows there's nothing special about her. She's a woman of poverty. She's a virgin. She's just a young lady. And yet, incredibly, God has chosen her to be the mother of God the Son. He who is mighty has done great things. She was indeed blessed, not because of her behavior. She was blessed because in God's kindness, she would hold God in her hands. And yet with that as a backdrop, with that voice coming from the back of the crowd, Jesus says, yeah, but there's a higher blessing, a greater blessing. And it is a greater blessing that comes through hearing and obeying the word of God. See, Jesus by now has already explained to them that though Satan has come to kill and rob and destroy people, I have come that you may have life and that in abundance. I have come to seek and save the lost. I've come 
So that you may be forgiven of your sin and adopted into the family of God. You can be reconciled to the Father. You can know for sure that heaven is your home. And the way to access that is not just through hearing my words, but obeying my words and putting your faith in me as your Lord and Savior. And then heaven will be your home. It's been his message throughout that you can find salvation in me. So when this woman in the crowd points out, blessed is your mom, he's like, yeah, she's a blessed lady, it's cool. But you can be even more blessed through hearing my word and through doing my word. You can be even more blessed by hearing the word of God and putting your faith in me as your Lord and Savior. That's the scene that happens right in the middle. And now when we go back to the start, everything makes a ton more sense. Three points this morning. Number one, the miracle itself. I want us to examine what happens here with this mute man. Point two, the crowd's response. And then number three, the vital question. And yet as we go through this together, I really just have one hope for us this morning. And that's the hope that for every one of us in the room, we would embrace this most tangible blessing for ourselves. Not everybody gets to be the mother of Jesus. But here Jesus is talking to us about an incredible and tangible blessing that is open to every one of us. It's an invitation open to all. Something for each of us. And I pray we would hear it and embrace it and receive this blessing for ourselves. Three points this morning. Here's the first. The miracle itself. And as the scene is set for us by Dr. Luke in verse 14, we are introduced to a man who is mute. I want you to imagine the scene and I want you to try and put your feet in his sandals for a moment. Maybe this man is 25, maybe he's 35, maybe he's 45 or 55. We're not clear how long he has been mute for. But what is clear is for years, maybe even decades, this man has not spoken a word. Imagine how difficult that would be. Imagine how frustrating it would be to not be able to speak at all. Many people at this time in history wouldn't read or write. So you are limited. This man would be communicating, no doubt, through hand gestures, through facial gestures, through movements of his body, maybe strange sounds coming out at some point. It must have been very, very frustrating to try and engage with people. And to a degree, as a family... We can relate to how frustrating this is because when Josh was young, he too was a mute. See, when Josh got to three years old, he had never said a word. And so we took him through a doctor and you're like, hey, he's still not saying like anything. And so they did a series of tests. They're trying to work out, you know, is it, is it, is it mental? Is it physiological? Is it physical? And through a series of events, they worked out, oh, he's actually got a submucous cleft palate. So inside his mouth, all our muscles run this way, but Josh's ran that way. So his mouth didn't move. So they did a series of operations when he was three and then five to change the muscles around in his mouth so that he can now talk. Even when we arrived in Australia, he, still, he wasn't actually talking all that clearly all that time he gave. But I still remember when Josh was real little and he couldn't talk, it was very frustrating. Very frustrating for us, very frustrating for him. He would try and, he would try and point to things and give you, and it's just like, what? I don't understand. What, what do you mean? 
And so my wife taught him some Makaton, which is like basic sign language. And he was, my wife was really good at it, and Josh was really good at it. I was probably not so good. I remember one time we went to him, we went to this play area in Bridge End, and Emma went and got some food for us because we were having lunch. Josh was right at the top of this play area, and he just kept looking at me doing this. So I'm just doing, I'm waving back. Yeah, hey, 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 all the best. And then Emma comes back, and I'm like, he keeps doing this. What does that mean? She's like, that means help me. So, okay. <laughs> Okay, I'm on my, my, my way. I'm on my way. So there I am running up this, this, this sort of playground trying to get him back down. Oh, I, I understood you, son. It was a very frustrating time. Very frustrating for him. Very frustrating for us. But imagine you're not a kid. You're a man. And there's no operation coming. Because upon review with the doctors, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to speak. Imagine that that's been your existence for years and then imagine it coming to light that the only reason why you're not talking is because a demon has strapped your tongue down. What a desperate existence. And then this happens. Verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, The mute man spoke, and the people marveled. I mean, you talk about a lot getting done in one verse in that moment. This man has been a mute for years, if not decades. In a moment, boom, you can start talking now. In an absolute moment, this life is completely changed. Imagine the praise coming out of his mouth in this moment. Imagine the applause from the crowd coming out in this moment. Imagine the cheers. That guy, he hasn't spoken a word for years, but now he's talking fluently. Imagine the joy in this crowd examining all that is taking place. You would imagine that everybody in the crowd in this moment would be worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You are amazing. But they're not. Some are, some are not. Some are not that impressed about what is taking place. And that takes me to my second point, the crowd's response. Look at verses 15 and 16, in light of all that has just taken place. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. You would have expected, surely, the crowd to be in tumultuous applause here because Jesus is a wonderful King of kings and Lord of lords. However, many are not because they are hard-hearted in their unbelief. Some in the crowd on this occasion say, no, I'm not buying it. Yes, he cast out demons, but he does that in the name of Satan himself. He's aligned himself. He's in cahoots with demonic forces. Other people say, oh, no, I don't don't think it's that. But give us another sign. Is that all you got? Do more. We want to see more. What's your next party trick? If you want us to believe in you, show us more. And as I was thinking about that this week, my love and respect for Jesus increased once again. 
how tempting it must have been just to go, I'm done. You're aligning me with Satan. And you want one more sign? I've given you hundreds. Just, I'm done. Kent Hughes says it this way in his wonderful commentary. He says, the religious establishment's rejection of Jesus was so insulting and so outrageous that humanly speaking, he could have been tempted to simply turn away without a word. For it is not easy to answer fools. But then when, we, when they were standing on the edge of the abyss and Jesus cared about their souls. He cared about them. So even now, he's operating towards them with patience and grace and mercy. He is aware that they are standing on the edge of an abyss and he cared about their souls. Behold the mercy and patience and grace of Jesus. And so he addresses these two points of view in the crowd. He starts to engage with them on this issue. And so first and foremostly, Jesus begins to mercifully reason with those that think that he is in some way in cahoots with Satan. That's what you see in verses 17 through 22. And he reasons with them through some genius and merciful logic. Look at me at verses 17 and 18. But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, which he did because he was God, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided house, household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. His point is, listen, no kingdom divided against itself can stand, right? No house divided against itself can stand. It's not going to stay upright. So why would I be casting out demons From a kingdom that you're saying I'm in cahoots with. And he makes it real clear in this text that I have been casting out demons. There ain't just, this ain't like a one-off. He's been doing this for a long time. In Luke chapter 4, for example, verses 40 to 41, we read, Now when the sun was setting, all all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. Jesus didn't want his great introduction into the world being heralded by demonic spirits. So he tells them, Shut up! And they do shut up. He does exactly the same in Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 9. Jesus has rebuked hundreds, if not thousands of demons from people. And his point in this case then is, what you are saying is illogical. For if I'm in cahoots with Satan, why am I destroying his kingdom? And then he adds to that, aren't your sons also rebuking demons? His sons is basically a literary way of saying, your followers, those that you're training? Verse 19, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by who do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. It's common understanding that at this time, Jewish contemporaries did indeed perform exorcisms 
And they performed them under the banner that it was in the power of God that demons were leaving. So Jesus' point is, hey, listen, that doesn't really make sense. And don't you think they're able to do it in the power of God, but I'm somehow in cahoots with Satan? It doesn't make sense. Now, what Jesus wants to help them see in this moment, listen, I am not in cahoots with Satan. I am God. He goes on to tell them in verse 21 and 22, these demons come out of people because one greater than Satan is before you. Satan is indeed a strong man. He builds people into bondage. But imagine for a moment, one stronger than him comes in. That one stronger can plunder his house. I am he. These demons leave because I am the creator of the world. I am God. I am the king. And when I say something, everybody responds. He wants to help them see in this moment what you are saying and your rejection of me by way of reason is completely illogical. And yet in all honesty, my friends, prior to salvation... All of our rejections of Jesus are somewhat illogical, don't you think? The evidence for Jesus being God is flat out overwhelming. It's not like to become a Christian, we have to make a blind leap of faith. No, no, you just have to think and humble yourself and respond. The evidence for Jesus being God is overwhelming. And yet we are logically rejected. At least I know I did for many years of my life. But when you examine the evidence, it's overwhelming. I mean, this is miracles for starters. Jesus performed literally hundreds of miracles that are not just dictated to us in the Bible. But you start reading historians like Josephus and Tacitus. They all talk about this guy who claimed to be God that was performing miracles. And he performed hundreds of them. Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus walked on water. Jesus stilled the storm. Jesus rebuked demons. Jesus healed the sick. And every single time he tells people, I'm doing this so that you know I am God. How else do I do it? And then there's his character. When you examine the character of Jesus, he is the greatest friend you could ever imagine. The kindest, the most loving, the most gracious, the most patient. Even now, he's being so patient with them. And he does it all the time. Even later on in the text, when he starts to be beaten and accused and even crucified, his point is, Father, forgive them. His character is overwhelming. It's beautiful, not, not to mention his teaching. He speaks with such wisdom, which is why the crowds all the time say, he preaches so much different to everybody else. He preaches with authority, as if he wrote the thing. Because he did. And then there's his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. 500 years of prophecies, over 300 of them. Jesus fulfills them all. Some 29 relating into where Jesus will be born and how he will die. How you would set that up only knows. But Jesus fulfills every single prophecy. 10 after 10 after 10 after 10. The 
what the the evidence for Jesus being the Son of God, as you examine his miracles, his character, his teaching, his, his prophetic fulfillments, it is overwhelming. This must have been him. And yet we suppress that, don't we? And we go, hmm, no, 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 no. No, I think, I think you're in cahoots with Satan. Who's the illogical one? We all, in our sinful state, before we are believers, find many illogical reasons why not to respond. I know I did. And that's what some in the crowd are doing in this moment. They're rejecting him, illogically. And so he mercifully addresses them and helps them see, listen, it doesn't even make sense that I would be in cahoots with Satan. It's not true. And then Jesus mercifully warns those who want a sign. The other group in the crowd that are seeking to reject him. The other group that just want yet another party trick, please. And Jesus addresses them in verses 29 through 32. This is what he says. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For they came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let me explain to you what that all means. It is a warning from the Savior himself. Listen, when he's talking about the Queen of Sheba, I don't think that's a super common story for people to understand. The other one is Jonah. and we Jonah, I get that. The Queen from the South, what's that all about? Where's the Queen of Sheba? It's not an overly well-known story, but it's a story that occurs in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. The Queen of Sheba was an incredible queen. She was the queen of the south. She was from southern Arabia, what is present-day Yemen. So she was the queen of that area of the world. But she had heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. She had heard from afar that there is this man called Solomon that has asked Yahweh for wisdom and Yahweh seems to be blessing what he's doing. So she can't resist. i got to see it. So she takes a journey with a whole entourage. It would have taken them likely months to get there. It was a long way. And when the Queen of Sheba arrives in Solomon's presence and meets him and listens to him and see what the wisdom of God has enabled him to build, it says in that text that her breath was literally taken away. It's like a Top Gun moment, okay? She was literally, she couldn't breathe. It's just that sense of, she's so amazed. She's so amazed at what Yahweh has produced through Solomon. Surely this is the fingerprints of God in your life. Surely it is. Such is that wisdom. This isn't just human wisdom. This must be wisdom from above. Well, Jesus right up front is helping them see everybody in the crowd in this moment. You remember Solomon? Great. One greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was a wise man. I am wisdom. Solomon was on the receiving end of wisdom. I was the source. 
I was the one who gave him that wisdom. Listen to me. One greater than Solomon stands before you. And as an expression of that then, he takes them to the sign that they are going to receive. The one sign that they are going to need. He's not willing to give them hundreds and hundreds more signs. No, we're done with that. You've seen it all. I'm just going to give you one sign. And it's the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, he says, so will the Son of Man be to the people of your generation, indeed the people of the world. What does that mean? Well, let me explain. The story of Jonah is a much more familiar one, no doubt likely for everybody in the room. You can examine it in the book of Jonah itself. It's wonderful. Jonah was a prophet. I think the song says Jonah was a prophet and he didn't know it or something. He's like, oh, he definitely did. I don't know where they got that from. But he was called by God as a prophet. And he was called by God to take the message of salvation to Nineveh. God wanted to save the incredible city of Nineveh. It's a dramatic moment in history. The problem is Jonah liked lots of people, but definitely not the Ninevites. So he didn't fancy the task. God calls him to go east to Nineveh. What does Jonah do? He goes west to Tarshish as fast as he can. He literally goes entirely the opposite direction. He's like, no way am I up for that. Because I know what's going to happen. I know what you're going to do. I'm going to go there. I'm going to tell them about you. You're going to save them. And I don't like them. That's what he does. So he runs off to Tarshish. He goes entirely in a different way. And through a series of events, he ends up in a boat. It's always a precarious place to be when you're running away from God. A great storm comes. He gets thrown over the side. At his request, he's like, I'm done. He's thrown over the side. He gets swallowed by a big fish. For those of you who think it's a whale, yeah, it never says whale. It says big fish. So he gets swallowed by a fish for three days. He is in the belly of this fish. And it is there that he comes to his senses. It's there that he repents of his sin. He asks the Lord for forgiveness. And he says, if there's another way, if you'll give me a second chance, I will go tell him. Well, on the third day, the fish spits him up. He goes out. He goes to Nineveh. He tells them the glories of the gospel. What happens? Probably the greatest revival known in human history. The Ninevites turn to the Lord en masse. Hundreds and thousands of people put their faith in God. There is a great revival takes place. I was watching a program on Nineveh some time ago, and it was amazing. Looking at the archaeology, the amount of people that started to put fishes into, their, into, the, into all their doorposts. And they're like, why did they do that? And you're like, I think I know what it says about Jonah. You know, this was, it was a whole, it was a mass revival in Nineveh. And out of that whole story, what emerges is the sign of Jonah. And it is the sign of one to come who would be buried not into the belly of a fish for three days, but one to come who would die and be buried into the belly of the earth for three days and then on the third day rise again. And what Jesus is saying is that sign of Jonah that was to the Ninevites, I am that sign to you. I will not be buried into the belly of a fish. I will die and give my life away as a ransom for many. I will be buried into the belly of the earth. And then on the third day, I will rise again. 
because I am him. For one greater than Jonah stands before you. What wisdom, what grace, what a king. And his point is, listen, if the Gentiles put their faith in Jonah, then how much more can you put your faith in me? If they believed on mass as Gentiles, this dude, then how much more can you believe in me as Jews? Because I am he. For one greater than Solomon has come. And one greater than Jonah has come. And Jesus was his name. And he's right there. Standing right in front of them. What a merciful and kind king he is, don't you think? He could have just dismissed them. I've told you enough. But he doesn't. He's aware that even now you are standing on the abyss. So I'm coming after you. I want you to see who I am. I want you to respond. Because when you hear my words and you obey my words through putting your faith in me as Lord and Savior, then this blessing will be yours. So he does all he can to mercifully reason with them. And where that leaves us, just finally by way of conclusion, is point three, the vital question. Because what you realize Dr. Luke has done yet again is finishing the text with all eyes on us. So Martin Luther once wonderfully said, the Bible is alive, it speaks to me. It has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold of me. We read the Bible, but in so many ways the Bible reads us. We hear the Bible, but in so many ways the Bible is speaking to us all the time. It is on search and rescue. God still speaks today, and he speaks through his glorious word. And the question then that is implied throughout this text, and in particular as we conclude, is how then are you going to respond? We see the response of the crowd, but how will you respond? What will you do with this now? Will you reject Jesus? Like many in the crowd did? Or will you embrace him? By putting your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And therefore receive the tangible blessing of salvation. See, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If that's the case, thank you for coming. Thank you for being a part of our service today. Thank you for giving us the privilege of having you here. You know, maybe you, you're arriving today, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but your disposition, and maybe in particular you being in a church, is, hey, listen, it's not like I full-on rejected him. I'm just not that into him. You know, I'm just sort of having a look-see. I've not rejected him, but I wouldn't say I'm really in either. Listen, I think that's a really understandable disposition. I get it. I get the vibe. But Jesus has something to say about that. And it really doesn't matter what I think about it or what we may perceive to be the right vibe. The only words that matter is Jesus's. And this is what he says to those that perceive they're sitting on the fence. In verse 23, he says, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
to Jesus, there is no venue. You're either in or you're out. You're a sheep or you're a goat. You're a wheat or you're a tear. So we can't just spend time saying, hey, it's not like I'm really rejecting him. I'm just not that into him. No, Jesus is looking back and saying, no, no, that is rejecting me. It's the way it works. You either embrace me or you reject me. There's nothing in between. And friends, I want to urge you then, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you to do one thing today. Put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is that moment that you not only hear his word, you do his word, and it's then, boom, that he saves you. It's then when you get on your knees before him and say, Lord, I want you. Please come into my life. I I put my faith in you as Lord and Savior. It's that moment that he forgives you and redeems you and assures you that heaven is your home. For God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That belief isn't just a mental ascent. Even the demons believed. That belief is the moment when we say, listen, I receive you as the Lord of my life, my King, and I believe you died in my place. When we do that, Jesus says, in that moment, boom, you are saved. Listen, I want to encourage you. If you don't know Jesus and you think, oh, I'm not ready to become a Christian. I need to put my house in order first. This text addresses that. It ain't no good putting your house in order. There's no point. True Christianity doesn't come through, oh, I better get my life sorted out and then I'll respond to him. No, no. True Christianity is understanding my house is a mess. I need a savior. I need somebody to help me. I need a king. And then you come as you are and say, Lord, forgive me of my sin and I put my faith in you as Lord and savior. In a moment, he says, yes, I will. If you don't know Jesus, don't go home today without doing that for yourself. And if you do that, please let us know because we want to help you in your faith. We want to walk with you as a brother and a sister. We want to spend time with you to help you. But that's why this text is here. Because he wants you. He's coming after you. He's calling your name. And if you're here today and you do know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, Listen, as we come into Christmas, although it would be true all year round, this is another wonderful moment, is it not? Just to marvel and worship the Lord. To see his mercy and his grace and his love and just say, you are amazing in every way. But that's not all that I think this text demands of us as believers. Verse 33. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. My friends, the way we apply this then as Christians is by allowing the incredible light of the gospel that shine into our lives to shine out of it as well. It can be so tempting, can it not, to leave those doors, go about our job, and then just put a giant basket over our life. I'm just going to blend in. But we can't do that as Christians. 
There are hundreds and thousands of people in Sydney that don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There are hundreds and thousands of people in Sydney, just like there was in Nineveh, that are running far from the Lord, uninterested in the Lord, and are blind to it. And he's given each and every one of us who know him a light to shine. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, let it shine. Don't go hide in it. But let the love of Christ shine from your life in word, in deed, in everything you do. For what we have here is a most tangible blessing. A blessing that comes from hearing and obeying the word of God. So may we delight in it. And may we tell it. And may we, by the grace of God, transfer all glory to him as a result. Amen. My friends, I'm aware it's been a long service today, so we're not actually going to close with singing. But why don't you stand together? And I'm just going to pray for us all. Let's pray. Well, Lord, our soul does indeed magnify the Lord. Lord, we sing with Mary in our hearts. He who is mighty has done a great thing. Taken my place. Oh, Lord, I thank you that you came after us. I thank you that you ran headlong after us. And then I thank you that you have shown to us such incredible patience and love and mercy. Oh, Lord, I pray for anybody present who does not know you as Lord and Savior. I pray that even now they may turn from their sin, put their faith in you as Lord and Savior, and receive this blessing of salvation that you so want to give them. Lord, would not anybody leave today, not in perfect union with you, knowing the joy of forgiveness and adoption and that heaven is our home. Lord, I thank you that Christianity isn't a blind leap of faith. It's simply humbly responding to the logical and putting our faith in you. And Lord, for all of us, as we now go into this season of Christmas, Lord, would we never move on for the glories of what Christmas is all about? Would we never move on from marveling at how great you are? Our Lord, would we shine the light that you have put in our hearts? Would we not hide it? But would we shine it out in a city that so desperately needs you? Help us, Lord. Be with us. And may we be the city on a hill that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.